The Bones and Bombins podcast is now on Patreon. Would you like access to bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Well, join us in the Curiosity Shop at patreon.com backslash bones and bobbins. Your generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very eternal gratitude and entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group. Which is super duper fun. It's true. And like super uh, chill. Also that's true. Important. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Very chill, creepy people. Yes. Who are not so chill about creepy things. Right. In a Especially in a creepy way. crafting thing. All the things. Exactly. So much fun. Yes. In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, You'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet. Where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Hello, morbid makers. We are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully discomposed, Opaquely odd. Merrily morbid. Marvelously misanthropic hosts. And this is Bones and Bobbins, Season 2, Episode 12, Pride and Prejudice. I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast. And I'm Natalie from Uberdark Designs and Official True Crime Creative. So, I had a really weird dream this week. Did you? This past week. Yep. I had a, like, full runtime dream of George Clooney doing an SNL skit parody of Eminem's Lose Yourself, but (laughs) instead of being those lyrics, it was about adopting a rescue pit bull, which he had with him. I'm here for this. And I... Like, I saw the whole thing in the dream, and I can't remember the lyrics now, and I'm mad about it. <laughs> was it like, oh, brother, we're out there style? No, no. It was, it was like full on Eminem. Eminem he was rapping. just spitting yeah. lyrics. That's mm-hmm. amazing. That is amazing. Yep. I, that just makes him even more delightful, and he is a delightful human being. Yes, it, it's true. He held the door open for me once. Ooh, all right then. <laughs> yes. I had a moment where I was like, huh, you're George Clooney. Yeah. All right. That happened. Yep. Nice. That was nice of him. Very cool. (laughs) Anyway, so uh, that and only thinking in grids is how my week has been going. How about yours? It's going. It's hot here. Um, uh-huh. Which is not my favorite. I will go on the well, re- summer's pretty much summer's not my favorite. Um, based mm-hmm. on that, but I have been really, really enjoying. So I got this game called Cozy Grove, and it's for. Um, I got it for my Switch, but you can get it on Steam and a bunch of other places. And it was on sale. I think it was like twelve bucks. 
It is the most delightful fucking game. It's like Animal Crossing, but instead you're like a you're like a little Girl Scout stuck on an island full of ghosts, and you're just trying to help them deal with their trauma. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's my life. It's yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but it's so wonderfully illustrated. Um, it's not super time consuming, like. It's it's it forces you to go at like a slower pace than, you know, so you can pick it up and play it for a little bit, like 20 minutes a day or whatever. Yeah. Um, but the storyline and again, the illustrations are amazing and you can do things like you could do an Animal Crossing, like fish and plant things and there's pets and stuff. Um, but it's really nice. very sweet. And I love I love these giant the ghosts are giant bears. So you're like this tiny little Girl Scout helping these giant bear ghosts and all their little trauma. Why are they ghosts? We haven't really figured that out yet. I haven't gotten that far in the game I'm on. Okay. I mean, it's possible that you don't ever figure that out. You only get so far during the day. So each, each day you get like a new set of tasks and then when... You get these spirit logs and you feel you feed them to your fire and then when the fire levels up, they, they like it like <laughs> unveils a new ghost and then you go help that ghost. So each ghost can have like a daily task and it's but you learn more about them. Like there's one character that's like convinced that these photos that you're finding are of him, but they're not. They're of like a different ghost. So he's trying to sort out who he was before and he can't remember that, but he can like remember his wife. Um, so it's really interesting, um, <laughs> and very, it's just very well done and very sweet and just. I mean, it's not unlike ways. real interaction. Right. I mean, not usually giant bears. Right. Not usually visual anything, but. but yeah. So huh. that and prepping for, I was invited to participate in an art show towards the end of the month uh cool. and the theme is jim henson <laughs> so, uh, i think that the kermie flail is <laughs> your most frequently sent gift right. to me so <laughs> i feel like this it. is gonna work well and it's funny too because the muppets will actually come up in in my uh in my little story today so it's uh it's oh of, yeah um all right so yeah and then part of me was like i kind of want to do like i really like statler and waldorf the curmu- the two curmudgeon dudes yeah in the theater and i kind of thought it'd be fun to like put their little heads on plaques like crochet their heads and put them on little plaques like faux taxidermy but i didn't know if that'd be too oh my deep. gosh <laughs> you know the singing trout yes i want that only them with their yes. mouths moving Ooh. and saying things. I don't know if I can make their mouths move in time. Because Probably not in time for that. But just But I could speaking. do like a recording where people could push the button and hear them riff. Um so I'm trying to figure that out. I'm sketched out a couple plans. I also sketched out uh, my other thought was something Emmett Otto related because people forget that's Henson and that was like my favorite when I was a kid. Um, and then there's also oh, Labyrinth. Oh, I forgot that was Henson, too. Yeah, there's also Labyrinth. 
and dark crystal so there's a lot of really it's hard to narrow it down um yeah well those are the two i know yeah so yeah because i was a creepy child oh same like my kids saw dark crystal probably far before they should have um i yeah i was gonna grow up and have a dog and name it fizgy um yeah oh fizgy (laughs) my uh elementary school My elementary school, for reasons unclear, showed us Labyrinth when, I want to say third grade, because it was, you know, some of those days when teachers just go, fuck it, and you watch a movie? Oh, that was the best day, when that that cart started getting wheeled in, you were like, yes. Yep. And so this was that, only it was also thunderstorming outside so it was just sort of up in the air whether or not we were gonna have to go do tornado nonsense yep and so we just watched labyrinth instead and for a long time that was like the go-to movie of my (laughs) elementary school like teachers wasting time i think ours was an i want to say ours was the never-ending story that that tracks um but yeah, I who chose that? I'm trying to remember what class I was There's in. Some '80s stuff that I show the girls when they were little, like Goonies. I mean, I one of my all-time <laughs> favorite, and I I didn't remember oh, the, NDT. Pe- the penis statue. That's my mom's favorite part, and the, I totally had to be like ah, because <laughs> I I didn't I didn't recall that, and the girls were like, but what is that? So yeah, there's That's some really '80s funny. stuff. They slipped some stuff in there that. Might not, might not be uh, in uh, PG movies now. You know, whatever. Yeah. I, I recall my mom cackling with glee because we rented the Romeo and Juliet from the seventies, um, uh-huh. where she's topless. She is straight up tits out <laughs> i mean only once and she's just kind of moving yeah but like my mom just cackled with glee <laughs> that we were being bad oh so uh, naughty. and i was like fair enough but also that actress was actually that young so yeah that's a yeah that's another danger of watching older things yeah. where you're like all of the problematic things i know too much now yeah. Although I actually, I don't know if she was that young, that young. I don't know if she was like 13 or 14. Um, but she was, she was not an adult. She was not of consenting age. I mean, depending on when age of consent was at the time in like 1974. Yeah. It should never be 13. <laughs> that should yeah. not. And now I'm thinking about Days Confused. <laughs> oh, Because that's what I like about high school girls. Mm-hmm. I keep getting older and they, they stay, stay the same, same age. All right, all right. Oh, <laughs> God, he was creepy. Yeah. We definitely had that guy. Yeah. I, I bet that guy doesn't exist in the wild in the same way that that guy existed when we were growing up. Because there was always, like, the gross guy driving the 70s car that just sort of showed up where the high school kids were. Yeah. And as far as I know, 
He didn't ever do anything but hang around and be creepy. Yeah. Like, I don't... I don't think there was actually anything going on, but don't, no, don't do that. Don't be that guy. Don't do it. Don't be that guy. It's gross. It is. It's gross. And like way illegal. Seriously. Yes. (sighs) Anyway, that took a turn. Um, (laughs) So do you want to talk about boobs? Sure. Uh. Before we talk I mean, about boobs, we can thank our Curiosity Shop members. <laughs> Speaking of boobs. I guess. I mean, they all presumably have breast tissue of some sort. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but yeah, now is the time that we would like to uh, take a quick break to thank all of our fantastic Curiosity Shop members over on Patreon. It's true. And if you join us there, not only will we give you a super big shout out, because that's Uh how we roll, but you'll get to hear all of the off-week episodes that we record. Yeah, there's quite a back catalog. Yeah, there is. Uh, Mm -hmm. And next week, over on the Patreon, we're talking about building old school queer neighborhoods. Yes, Uh, like... Uh, wartime neighborhoods. I wartime. think we're, are we both uh, coming in around the forties, fifties? Actually, I'm preceding you. I'm post World right. War One, and then sliding into some uh, Nazi action, um, wherein I want to burn people alive because it makes me angry. Uh, but yeah, we're old, old school queer neighborhoods. Yeah, and oh, they're just. It's so fun to look at that history. I mean, some of that history is very right, upsetting, right. but it's so heartwarming it is. to see people literally building actual, like, physical structures to house a community that was otherwise not okay. Right. Safe at the time. Havens. Yeah. So, also, anyway. Also, you get to hear more of our cats because they get real loud. Um, Oh, our our cats are vocal. I, you know what? I keep forgetting to put up those bonus clips. We yep, we have some bonus clips. We're a little. <laughs> I sometimes we go on tangents in between that don't quite fit into episodes. <laughs> no. So we just you know you get a little little blurb in there, but you do get some seriously fun things, and then you get to watch things. Uh, especially like in the Facebook book group on things that uh, we do on a regular basis too. Like I have been um, cataloging and photographing, photographing, <laughs> taking the pictures of uh, all the tiny little cemeteries that we venture. And there's a ton. There's a ton out here. Um, yes, it's so good. Yeah, so I you get love to see, it every time a new one pops up. Right, and you get to see, yeah, just some behind the scenes lifey kind of stuff and yeah so you're awesome yeah. join us over there you will it's thank true. us for it and if it's not your thing we'll still love you and you can still you know listen to regular stuff there's no contract yep. you're not obligated cool. we have no hurt feels if you don't stick around um but we will hug you if you do uh, yeah. with consent of course give us a try listen to a bunch of extra episodes that you haven't heard yet yeah Try us. Okay. You'll like it. It's true. (laughs) 
And to our current patrons, Patreon supporters, I know. It's so awkward. Um, You're the best. The best. And we would totally go explore all of the hidden little graveyards around Natalie's place (laughs) in the woods, probably, with you. Absolutely. It's true. Okay. So now can we talk about boobs? Now let's talk boobs. (laughs) Okay. So... As I'm sure literally everyone who is listening to this knows, it's Pride Month. Yes. Hooray! Yay! And as members of the queer community ourselves, we wanted to touch on some interesting aspects of queer culture and the, I guess, ephemera that exists um i guess when i think of writing letters specifically Mm -hmm. that to me feels like crafting something it doesn't it it feels different than like texting you oh it feels like i am creating a thing instead of just saying a thing definitely and Yeah, and so I looked through various parts of the internet and found some historic queer love letters. Yay! I love it so much. And so I sort of fell into a rabbit hole with the (laughs) first one. And so I will start with a gay first lady. Yes, and it's not Eleanor Roosevelt, even <gasps> though um, really? I and many scholars definitely think she was gay, and I have looked through her file at the Lesbian History Archives, and I have photos, is all I'm saying. <laughs> and by I have photos, I mean they exist in that file. <laughs> I guess I could make copies of those photos, but I would not, because I don't know who to ask for permission. Anyway, so not Eleanor Roosevelt. But after that, we'll look at some World War II love letters that could literally have cost people their lives. And I'll circle back around with Lord Byron. Nice. Because you gotta have some Lord Byron. When in doubt, go Byron. I mean, that's what Byron thought too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Byron liked everybody. Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> yep. I uh, appreciate that. Yeah. About Lord Byron. Agreed. Anyway. So, gay first lady. Yeah. There was one. For sure. And I did not know this. I also didn't know about... About her as a first lady with context. Okay. So, you know how you usually think of first ladies as the spouse yes. of a president? Turns out that isn't necessarily the case, and there's protocol if you happen to be, well, specifically widowed, but a bachelor. 
Oh. Yeah. So, like, that is a thing. So a side boo was... could be a first lady? Uh, no. No. Uh, it has to be a female relative. So. Oh, oh a relative. Yes. Ah, okay. So, Rose Cleveland. Grover Cleveland's sister <gasps> is who we're going to talk about. Oh, dude. And tell. I did not realize that she was his sister mm-hmm. until I was researching this. Now, I knew that there was a change in first ladies and that it was vaguely a scandal, but I was assuming the wrong scandal. Okay. Yep. So somehow, despite enjoying both history and scandals, I hadn't stumbled across this particular presidential trivia, and I think maybe other people haven't too, or maybe I'm the last to know. I don't know. Probably not. That's the joy of this podcast. Tell me. Let me know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When Bachelor Grover Cleveland, well, then Bachelor, I should say, because he would eventually get married, took office in 1885, the established protocol for widowed presidents was followed. And his sister, Rose Cleveland, served as first lady. Hmm. And I didn't know until like five hours ago that there was protocol for widowed presidents and that it was to have a female relative step in to fill the role. Because the role of first lady has actual tasks and expectations attached to it. Different ones in Victorian times probably than now. But, But, you know, it's easy to forget based on our prior president. Oh, dear God. (laughs) Anyway, let's not go down that rabbit hole. So Rose was an interesting choice. And it wasn't unusual for it to be her, but she was very specifically chosen, even though I'm sure there were probably other female relatives who could have stepped in. She was a published author and a former teacher at a women's seminary. Okay. Which made her a respectable choice, Mm -hmm. which bolstered Grover Cleveland's less than stellar record on morality. There was uh, a little incident of a child out of wedlock involved here. That'll do it. Yeah, so so we had to get the very, very proper sister who taught at a women's seminary because, all right. And though she wasn't particularly well suited to the task, Rose Cleveland did step in and apparently, just fun fact, During the 14 months that she acted as First Lady, the thing that annoyed her specifically was gossip centered around her neckline. 
Okay. Like her garments. Uh-huh. I scrounged around on the internet, like you do, to see if she was wearing a particularly scandalously low-cut bodice at any point. Because this is Victorian America. Right. And so I did not... that They were a wealthy family, so there are photographs of them. And significantly more photographs of them than most people would have. And I gotta tell you, she was either buttoned all the way up to the chin... Or she had, like, a square neckline with some poof sleeves and some ruffles. There wasn't even a hint of cleavage. There was hardly a hint that she had boobs. Wow. I don't understand. Yeah. But I kind Jealous of love... ladies. I, I just... I kind of love that she was annoyed that that was specifically what she was mad about. Like, would you... Why are you discussing my neckline? Seriously. And I did find one photo that looked like it was maybe a, a, uh, I was going to say coming out photo, but in a different way, like the being presented to society. Yes. I, I think that that was probably what this photo was from. And it's in a ball gown that almost shows her shoulders. (laughs) Not the shoulders. I know. <laughs> they they were nicely curved shoulders. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, that just, that made me laugh for a moment. Understandably so. Anyway, Rose, as I said, would serve in the position of First Lady for 14 months. Of the first 14 months of Grover Cleveland's first term. And then... He would go ahead and marry his ward. Oh, no. Yep, because a 50-year-old man marrying a 21-year-old dependent isn't at all sketchy. No, no, no. And I will say that, I mean, she's an adult, but she's definitely financially dependent on him. Right, there Uh, is a power structure in there that is not... There is, and I do not actually know anything about their relationship so i'm giving it side eye but i'm giving it side eye with very little structure to hold that up (laughs) except for he was 50 and she was 21 i i have some she was financially dependent yeah i feel a little for her so now that there was a maritally pedigreed first lady (laughs) Uh, to take up the role, Rose went about her merry way and escaped on back to the family estate in upstate New York. And I think it was called something something funny, like the weeds. <laughs> she dipped down yeah. out to the weeds. Yes, I, th- I think that was the nickname of the family estate. That's funny. I like that. Yes. And so... Here's where we get to the romance. In the winter of 1889, like 1889-1890, after her stint as First Lady, Rose met a wealthy widow 
of a man who had been almost fifteen year or fifty years older than said widow. Um, oh my. Mm, whatever. Evangeline Simpson. Oh, that's a good name. Yeah. And whatever happened to them that winter, eh, or between them, not to them. I mean, I don't know what happened to them. Mm-hmm. No, actually, I do. I've read some of the letters. <laughs> but whatever happened between them that winter, it's safe to say that they were definitely more than just affectionate friends. But winter came to a close. And Rose lived on the family estate in upstate New York, and Evangeline lived in Massachusetts. Oh, no. And that's not a huge difference, especially if you've lived in the Midwest, and that's just driving across state, basically. But back then. But back then. It it was a big deal. You're not hopping on an Amtrak. You might have been. I think you might have been taking the train. Okay. I'm not sure, though. But definitely no plane. No, most certainly not. So, because they could not be face-to-face, they wrote each other extensively. And the collection of specifically the letters from Rose Cleveland to Evangeline survive today. Oh, I love that. The ones written from Evangeline to Rose do not, as far as we know, survive. Mm. But parts of those letters were quoted in the responses. Okay. So we do have some idea of uh, that this was a reciprocal and very specific kind of romantic relationship. I have such a soft spot for books of actual love letters. Like some of my favorite are, um, ooh, like Simone de Beauvoir's uh, love letters to Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, Yeah, there's just some some books that are just filled with letters back and forth are amazing because you do, you do, you do very much create a letter in a manner that you would not create a text or an email and... You know who I should have included and didn't? Hmm. Anais Nin. <gasps> Girl. She is one yeah. of my favorites. Yep. You 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 create a story with those Literary letters. smut. Oh, my God. Was Love it? it. Delta of Venus was my... Yes. <laughs> that was... It was an awakening. <laughs> it was an awakening. That is exactly what it was. It was an awakening. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Good and times. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of questionable material in many of those books. It can get a little rapey. Yeah. Yeah, But nonetheless, they were pretty important for my coming of age. Agree. As it were. Yes. All right. Anyway, back to Rose and Evangeline. So I'm going to read you a few snippets of the love letters between them. And most of these I 
pulled from a Washington Post article by Jillian Brockwell. Okay. Entitled, A Gay First Lady. Yes, we've already had one, and here are her love letters. Nice. Okay. Yes. And the article was written specifically about the release of a book called Precious and Adored, the love letters of Rose Cleveland and Evangeline Simpson Whipple, 1890 to 1918. I will be adding that to my reading list. Yes, I have not bought it yet, but I have I have it open. <laughs> There's a Kindle version. Nice. Okay, so here are just a few of the excerpts and it's very clear though romantic friendships were a thing yes. at this time and they weren't necessarily sexual. It's very clear that these are Rose writes my eve ah how i love you it paralyzes me oh eve eve surely you cannot realize what you are to me what you must be yes i dare it now i will no longer fear to claim you you are mine by every sign in earth and heaven by every sign in soul and spirit and body and you cannot escape me you must bear me all the way oh my gosh i love that so much Right? Oh, my heart. Yep. And that was from a letter in April of 1890. And the following month, she wrote, You are mine and I am yours, and we are one, and our lives are one henceforth. Please, God, who alone, or please, God, who alone can separate us. I am bold to say this. To pray and to live it. Am I too bold, Eve? Tell me. I shall go to bed, Eve, with your letters under my pillow. Ugh. Yes. So wound. Spoon. I know. <sighs> and one of the quotes that must have quite a backstory that was quoted from evangeline's letter to rose mm -hmm. the ones that we don't have one of the quotes cited was oh darling come to me this night my cleavy which is not it cleveland <laughs> <laughs> um my cleavy my viking my everything come god bless thee Get your, it. And then Rose replied, your Viking kisses you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, your, I oh. want to know the story. Right. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yes. And Rose also writes, and note that there wasn't language that was readily being used, that was in common vernacular to describe a romantic sexual relationship between women. Romantic friendships were very common and they often allowed women who were more than friends to basically live out in the open because it was normal at the time to have that kind of intimacy in a friendship but 
not i mean they're victorians so they weren't talking about sex true true but a romantic friendship is a separate actual thing or a thing that happens concurrently i suppose there is within their letters what historical scholars think is the first description of women giving each other orgasms that exists in literature. I love that. Yeah. Get it, Rose and Evangeline. Exactly. Yes, they talk about long, rapturous embraces that, quote, carry us both in one to the summit of joy, the end of search, the goal of love. So, they were both getting off. Nice. That's exciting. Yep. They had some cringy nicknames for each other. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> I don't really want to talk about them. Yeah. So, that all happened throughout the six years following Rose stepping down as First Lady. But then Evangeline married an Episcopal cre- creature? Preacher? <laughs> also creature. Oh, no. <laughs> you, that's how I feel about him, apparently. And she was a wealthy widow. She didn't need the money. And she was certainly at this time, she was 40, and so she was beyond expected childbearing years for the time. And, but nonetheless, her diary from the time, which was also kept because her entire home was kept pristinely by an overseer who then would give up all the papers to a mm-hmm. historical society, which is why we have all of them, and they are complete. Uh, in that particular diary, she indicated that her feelings were really genuine. Like, she was, as far as I can tell, and I don't know why she would lie in her diary, since she certainly wasn't lying about anything else. Right. Um, she seemed to have been in love with the Episcopal preacher. So, all right. Poor Rose. And so she married him. Hmm? Poor Rose. Oh, yeah, Rose was pissed. There there are letters from this time period. And then once Evangeline did, in fact, go through with the wedding, Rose flounced off to Europe with a mutual female friend. For reasons. Go, Rose. (laughs) (laughs) But... But this isn't the end of their love story, which is kind of great and kind of makes me want to cry in a good way. So following Bishop Whipple's death. Bishop Whipple. (laughs) Yes. Evangeline and Rose's relationship seems to have quickly rekindled. And... Like, they never lost touch. They always continued to write each other. And I think Rose was sort of trolling her from Europe. (laughs) 
Um, and then signing the letters very formally. Yeah. <laughs> I love uh, that. Yeah. But the letters became intimate again in both not sexual and sexual ways. And also they started using their nicknames again. And so it they don't clearly right back in. They, they were back together. And eventually, uh, due to, I believe, an illness in one of their families, Rose and Evangeline would live together in the Tuscan village of Bagni di Luca in oh. Italy. Yeah, I think I said Italy twice. That's all right. That's where they were. And they stayed there through World War I, which for women of means and a lot of means at the time, most people were getting the hell out right. of there. They're like, nope. Yeah. But instead, they stayed to help the wave of uh, refugees from the war. And okay, they, I love them. Yeah, they, so they seem to have lived as a couple together in with full knowledge of everyone around them and their families. Aww. It does not, and everybody seemed cool with it. It Good. does not seem that, I mean, it could just be that didn't occur to anyone that there was another option because there wasn't even language for it. True. But it was very clear that they were a couple and they lived as a couple in Italy and were, for all intents and purposes, basically married for mm -hmm. the rest of Rose's life. Oh. Yeah. So eventually the nineteen eighteen Spanish flu epidemic would happen, or I guess pandemic would happen. And Rose caught the virus while nursing a sick friend. Oh. And she died of that flew at 72 years old in 1918. And Evangeline would live another 12 years, but she eventually passed away in London in 1930. But her body was then returned to Italy where she was buried next to Rose. <gasps> and their graves are side by side, oh. like as one grave. Okay, I want to cry now, too. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. these papers had been available... Well, they have existed within academia since 1969. But it wasn't until 1978 that they were even allowed to be seen. Wow. Because 1969... Oh, I want to say, oh, Massachusetts. I was thinking Minnesota, but no, Massachusetts. <laughs> the other end. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, 
their historical society separated the letters between Rose and Evangeline from the rest of Evangeline's papers Mm. and sealed them and stored them and didn't let anyone see them. And then in 1978, because the American Library Association had, oh gosh, hold on, I have to find the actual name of this because it's so good. Um, I think it was called the Gay Task Force. Nice! (laughs) Yeah, because the American Library Association is amazing, they tipped off a scholar who requested that the letters be made available. And in 1978, they were made available for research and for the public to see. That's awesome. Yeah, which is way earlier. It's both way later and way earlier than I would have expected. Agree. I see that. Yeah, it was at a time. A time in the world. So that's Rose and Evangeline and their love letters. That's beautiful. Oh, that was yeah. a good one. So I've just got a couple more shorter ones that, well, I could have gone into a full rabbit hole on all of these, but I just, I feel like you hear an awful lot of stories from history about gay men and you don't necessarily see as much representation of queer women i agree and that felt important to me but one group who i think also deserves a lot of attention especially during pride month was soldiers yeah and specifically, I'm sure that there were World War I soldiers who were involved in this, but World War II soldiers is what I'm going to talk about. To give some context, being a soldier during World War II and being gay was not an option. Mm. Or being known to be gay. It was an a court-martialable, executable offense. You could be executed for being gay in the armed forces, specifically in England at the time. And so not too many pieces of correspondence, even though we know that given the population, that there would have been quite a few queer members of the military. Yes. There are relatively few surviving letters between men because to be caught with them could literally get you killed. Yeah. And so I found a story uh, from the BBC about two men who were very much in love named Gilbert Bradley and Gordon Bowsher. These letters emerged after Gilbert Bradley, who is the soldier that we're talking about, died in 2008. 
Oh, wow. And it's incredibly, incredibly rare, like I said, that these letters from that time period would have survived. I think the only reason that they did are because they're only signed with an initial. And there isn't gendered language in them. That so, makes sense. So I mean, World War Two dudes were writing all manner of smut to their <laughs> yeah. lady friends. And, well, all correspondence was opened and monitored because spies. Spies, yeah. These wouldn't have necessarily given away the relationship or that the relationship was between two men and so here's one of the letters also published in this bbc article from wednesday january 24th 1939 my darling i lie awake all night waiting for the postman in the early morning and then when he does not bring anything from you i just exist a mass of nerves all my love forever Aww. And that is from the boyfriend of the soldier to the soldier. And here's one from February 12th, 1940. My own darling boy, there is nothing more than I desire in life but to have you with me constantly. I can see, or I imagine I can see, what your mother and father's reaction would be. The rest of the world have no conception of what our love is. They do not know that it is love. Oh. Yeah. And... Because men, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The soldier writes about his conquests Mm. sometimes and that seems to just be fine (laughs) yeah i mean it it doesn't seem to be dramatic and uh, but all of these letters are really sweet like this one i think is maybe a breakup letter oh no but or in response to one or perhaps in response to the infidelity i'm not really sure but it from february 1st 1941 my darling boy for years it drummed into me that no love could last for life i want you darling seriously to delve into your own mind and to look for once into the future. Imagine the time when the war is over and we are living together. Would it not be better to live on from now on the memory of our life together when it was at its most golden pitch? Your own G. Oof. So, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the letters are beautiful and sweet and I really like them. It seems that the couple, though their relationship did not survive the war, 
they both did. And their letters stopped in 1945, but they went on to both live full and interesting lives. Hmm. And it's known that they met and fell in love with other people. And one of the one of the responses to the infidelity was G. Uh, Gordon writing that he quote understood why they fell in love with you. After all, so did I. Oh. And I just like it's so sweet. It really is. And wartime man I don't I could see how absurdly passionate you would have to be during that time to hold on to something yeah and oh they just they were so sweet Aww. so yeah that that is that particular forbidden love moving on to Lord Byron and many, many others that I will not read, but that I will leave links to in the show notes. So, we all know that Lord Byron just liked to hop into bed with everybody. Yeah. Or liked to be dramatically, romantically entangled with everybody. It, it was very dramatic to be Lord Byron, I think. Probably pretty fun. But pretty dramatic. While I was looking for love letters broadly, I came across a, well, I think it's a book from the 90s, but it also is kind of, I don't know, it looks like a GeoCities website. And <laughs> nice. Yeah, and it is called My Dear Boy, Gay Love Letters Through the Centuries. And it was published in 1998 and edited by Richter Norton. And there are many, many, many links to many, many men who or may not have liked other men. It's sort of unclear. Well, I guess it's sort of unclear in that having intimate friendships with other men, like during Victorian times or earlier, wasn't strange. I think like we need to having, bring that back. I know. Having feelings and expressing them mm -hmm. was not odd. Calling a good friend my dear fill-in-the-blank was normal. My dear um, boy! <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like, look at yes. letters between the founding fathers. Yeah. Like, things like that. The language is different. And a lot of people have probably also seen photographs from then. And they're like, holy shit, there were a lot of gay photographs. <laughs> but actually, men just were allowed to touch other men. 
They were allowed to have physical contact with their friends. They were allowed to put an arm around each other. They were allowed to do basically the things that close femme friends do now. And that was normal. And so there are a lot of... Bring it back. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And so there were a lot of friendships that were, like, friends that were documented in photos, and sometimes it's not very clear. And sometimes the language is just different enough, like the usage of the language, that it's hard for modern eyes to read it with the context in mind. And so, anyway, that's just a a warning if you do want to click through and look at these historical characters. I shake my head at some of them. But also, I don't know. So, do with that what you will. (laughs) So, Lord Byron. (laughs) Lord Byron wrote a lot of poems to a lot of people that he may or may not have been romantically or sexually entangled with. Unclear. But also probably. (laughs) Well, (laughs) yes. He wrote some letters with a cipher. (laughs) Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Cryptic shit for the win. (laughs) And there is an alphabetical key found in his papers. It was all very dramatic. I love it. And they are letters between Lord Byron and Elizabeth Bridget Pigeon. Okay. And they just basically seem to be gossip. Hmm. Like, dirty, dirty gossip. And, or hinted dirty gossip. I'm kind of, there there is a lot of language (laughs) that could go either way. And Byron's literal job was playing with language. I was going to say, it's probably every bit intentional. Yes. So I take that back. The cipher letters were written to multiple people, but I think that they were maybe collected by Elizabeth Bridget Pigeon because she seems to be the lady he sent shit to. I'm getting some serious Bridgerton vibes off this whole thing. (laughs) uh, Yeah. So, here's a letter from October 10th, 1811, between Lord Byron and Francis Hodgson. I do not know if this person is a man or a woman. I think a man, because it's I-S, not E-S. That makes sense. But, I heard of a death the other day that shocked me more than any of the preceding, of one whom I once loved more than I ever loved a living thing, and one who I believe loved me to the last. Yet I had not a tear left, 
for an event which five years ago would have bowed me to the dust. Still it sits heavy on my heart and calls back what I wish to forget in many a feverish dream. Lord. Lord Byron. Well. <laughs> All right. Lord Byron to John Cam Hobhouse. October 22nd, 1811. Good God. He wrote like every day. Seriously. Well, he needed a lot of attention. <laughs> All right. The event I mentioned in my last has had an effect on me. I am ashamed to think of, but there is no arguing on these points. I could, quote, have better spared a better being. Wherever I turn, particularly in this place, the idea goes with me. I say all this at the risk of incurring your contempt, but you cannot despise me more than I do myself. I am indeed very wretched, and like all complaining, person, complaining persons, I cannot help telling you so. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, okay. So, Lord Byron is filled with drama and poetry and ciphers and is worth a good stroll down that rabbit hole should you feel inclined to stroll down that rabbit hole i may revisit that rabbit hole in the future but anyway there is not a doubt in my mind that he dipped his nib in various inks (laughs) right (laughs) so in cambridge in 1805 just to wrap this up lord byron had an intimate friendship with John Adelson, a choir boy at Trinity Chapel. Oh, Lord Byron, you are a cliche. <laughs> yes. Um, and Byron's first biographer referred to Adelstone as Byron's, quote, adopted brother. Oh, okay. But this is a poem or an excerpt of a poem written by Byron about his adopted brother. (laughs) Ours to the glance none saw beside, the smile no one else might understand, the whispered thought of hearts allied, the pressure of the thrilling hand, the kiss so guiltless and refined that love each warmer wish forbore, those eyes proclaimed so pure a mind, even passion blushed to plead for more. Yeah, that is not a brother. <laughs> no, that's real guy. That's... Yeah. Yep. Yes. So, in conclusion, <laughs> Lord Byron, sticking his nib in a lot of pens, yeah. as you said. <sighs> Get it, though, you know? I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> I read a really delightful graphic novel in which a slutty Lord Byron was a character. Uh, Hold on, it's called Bonnets and... I can't remember. Uh, Like Bonnets and Gunpowder? 
That sounds right. I'm sure it's alliteration. I, but I, I own the book I'm looking for real quick. Maybe very graphic novels. Ha! Bloodlust and Bonnets. Nice. By Emily McGovern. I highly recommend. Um, it's vampire huntery slutty feminist graphic novel oh you said so many of the words that i like yep involving lord byron so (laughs) and i want to say more but i don't want any spoilers to exist but oh my god that is it's so good i highly recommend it i will be adding it to my list she's the person who writes the Oh, is it War and Peas? And the one with the slutty witch? Mm. I can't remember. Okay. And I say slutty in a good yes, way. Yes, yes, absolutely. But I believe that character is actually called the slutty witch. In a positive use. Oh, definitely. <laughs> that witch is in charge. <laughs> nice. Okay, so I, I'm now done with Byron. Nice. As much as anyone can ever be done with Byron. Uh, that was a good one to wrap it up with, because my feels were getting, I was getting choked up in there. Ugh. Oh, yeah. So, throughout uh-huh. history, the LGBTQIA plus community has had to go to extreme lengths to develop intricate symbols and signs to safely identify each other. Yes. Some are super fun, like Oscar Wilde popularized the Green Carnation, a famous lesbian oh, bar in Oscar Wilde. Yes. A famous lesbian bar in Paris during the 1920s uh, popularized the monocle. Spoiler alert, turn into next week's <laughs> Patreon to find out more. Uh, <gasps> some are tragic, uh, like the Pink Triangle, um, wherein Nazis used those to mm. mark those deemed queer before they were put into concentration camps. Yeah, and then Weezer had a bad idea. Damn it, Weezer. Fucking Rivers Cuomo. (sighs) God, why does he have to be so cute, though? I don't know. Uh, He looks just like me. (laughs) That explains things. (laughs) (laughs) But sincerely, he kind of does. (laughs) Uh, Do you know, though, that entire languages were created and morphed and adopted as well. Yeah. Today I'm going to talk about lavender languages. Now, I love that description. I love it too. So before I dive into the different languages, I want to touch briefly ish cuz you know, when do I ever do things super briefly, but uh on where the term lavender I sure don't. <laughs> on where the term lavender languages comes from uh because mm-hmm. it is a relatively young term. And certainly much younger than any of the languages that it represents. So, in short, lavender languages is a term that simply means LGBT linguistics. And its origin is credited to William Leap. Leap is a professor of anthropology at American University in D.C. And Mm -hmm. also an affiliate professor in the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Program at Florida Atlantic University. Um, 
and he works in overlapping the fields of language and sexuality studies and queer linguist like queer why is he working in women's studies queer linguistics right especially so uh queer historical linguistics now cool one of which is he actually founded the annual lavender language and linguistics conference in 1993 to coincide with the March on Washington for lesbian, gay, and bi-equal rights and liberation. Cool. Now, the conference takes its name from a desire to avoid questions of who it would or would not include. Uh, Leap himself explains that they wanted to create a space for everyone who is interested in language and sexuality studies. I thought, mm-hmm. let's use that ancient term lavender and let's offend everybody, Leap said. Oh my gosh. Lavender. I... Okay, I, I take it back. Um, my earlier questioning yeah. of him, which was also wrong and I shouldn't have said it anyway. I get it. But Valid question. I kind of love him. You're going to love him. Uh, lavender... Uh, Lee pointed out has been associated with the occult and mysticism, with women's power in Africa, and with forms of power in the West, uh, specifically in the Roman Imperial Court of the Catholic Church. Uh, the <laughs> name sunk, like stuck, and it's become synonymous with the inclusive relationships that it's set out to approve. So, right. um, and to build. So, quick side note: the color lavender actually does have a. Uh, relatively decent sized history in LGBTQ uh, resistance and I have provided you a link yes. to a really good article on how it is um, done so in the show notes under further reading. The Lavender Languages Conference is the longest running lesbian gay studies orientated um, conference in the US and I believe the world. So cool. I highly encourage you to check William out I could have just done an entire thing on him um, as he's I mean number one he's pretty groundbreaking in a lot of ways I encourage you to find video of him because he speaks with a southern drawl and cusses <laughs> like a trucker's wife and just in case you still aren't convinced he's also a Muppet fan Wow, that is a lot of information to take in. Right? Uh, I have a quote for you. I'm overstimulated. <laughs> Let me tell you what it is, honey, Leap said on a Monday afternoon from his home in Tampa, Florida. <laughs> Miss Piggy's English is so queer. Back in the 20s and 30s, there was this massive use in some social sets in gay America of French as the quintessential gay language. And that continues to the 70s, he said. Honest to God, Miss Piggy <laughs> Today. Spoke, yep, spoke fluent gay English. The way she slips in those little French things, like the use of moi and the hand gesture to the bosom, that is so 1930s gay. And yep, I am. Hell yes. I am a fucking Leap fan. Love him. Love, love, love. So, check him out. Uh, yeah, can we hang out with him? Seriously, like, I would like to, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Great. So, now on to the languages. And much like language crafts stories and communication back and forth it can craft and sometimes save entire communities 
Now, mm-hmm. undoubtedly, the most popular of the Lavender languages is Polari. There right. is also a whole argument that it's actually an anti-language. And quite honestly, I just don't friggin' know enough about linguistics to really argue either way. So call it whatever you choose. Uh, no matter which way you do it, uh, its importance in the queer culture still pretty much remains solid either way. Yeah. So the name is derived from Italian parler, parlare, meaning to talk, which mm-hmm. makes sense due to the fact that it developed from an earlier form of language called parlare, which hmm. uh, had roots in Italian. <laughs> And rudimentary forms of language used for communication by sailors around the Mediterranean. Um, huh. It was also then... Hey, sailor. <laughs> pretty much. Now, because of that, and you can kind of see how the web would spread out, it was also associated with travelers, buskers, beggars, and sex workers. Uh, it mm-hmm. was around in like 17 and 1800s. Uh, so it has been around like a really long time. Now, through its travels, especially once it got to London and other port cities in Britain, it gradually became used by gay men and female impersonators, especially during the first half of the 20th century. The sideshow and circus um, families uh, helped contribute to that a lot. Um, Oh, interesting. So That makes sense. Yeah. So, which is interesting because... Did you know that until 1967, homosexual sex was illegal in England and Wales? Yes. Uh, it just seems so weird to me. Um, but so I mean, it was illegal. Yeah, everywhere. In some states here, until very recently, or maybe still is Ugh. in some of them. I feel like Kentucky, maybe. <laughs> that makes sense. So once in Britain, it became to, like, it grow. It, like, went to grow again, and it added, like, a wealth of slang terminology from, like, different sources. So it included mm-hmm. cockney rhyming slang, back slang, which is pronouncing a word as if it was spelt backwards, which takes a lot of brain oh, yeah. power. French, Yiddish, American Air Force slang, <clears throat> even Romani, and what is referred to as thieves can't. Interesting. It was a constant... Cockney rhyming slang is fascinating and difficult. It is, indeed. Uh, It was a constantly developing form of language with a small core lexicon of about 20 words, including bona for good, ajax for nearby, eek for face, cod for bad in like the sense of like tacky or vile, Naf, mm. which is bad in the sense of drab or dull, um, though borrowed into mainstream British English, uh, the mainstream flipped it to be the tackier vile, if that makes sense. Um, laddie, which is a room, a house, or a flat, like a room to let. Nanti, which is not or no. Ami, man. Polone, woman. Ria, hair. Zhuzh, uh, which is smart enough, <laughs> stylized. Used all over Queer Eye for the Straight Guy version mm-hmm. one. Um, <clears throat> TBH to be had, but had is in sexually accessible. Ah. Trade, which is sex, and Vada for C. Uh, and then there's like over 500 other lesser known words. Uh, from this small list alone, though, you can really see how 
not only did they make their way into mainstream language, but they like remain, some of them remain in use today. According to a 1993 Channel 4 television series, um, sorry, document, not series. So Channel 24 television documentary called A Storm in a Teacup. There was once <laughs> in London an East End version, which stressed more the Cockney rhyming slang. And, oh, wait, I think I've seen that. And the West End version, which stressed theatrical and classical influences. Um, mm-hmm. And there has been some exchange between the two. Uh, it went deeper than just a language, though. Uh, Polari speakers christened themselves with camp names like Scotch Flow or Diamond Lil, affording themselves alternate identities that reclaim the representations of them as effeminate in positive ways. Not mm-hmm. unlike uh, drag houses um, and personas. Now, one of my all-time favorite organizations, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, shout out <laughs> and lots of love to Joshua, who has been a supporter of this podcast since day one, and in whom I've personally known and loved since he was in elementary school. Uh, they, they created a Polari Bible that you may read at polaribible.org. Link in show That's cool. Amazing. Also... I beg you to just visit their link under further reading in our show notes. Uh, I first see an episode on them in the future, but but don't wait for us, especially during Pride Month. Go forth and make your life even better by learning about them. Uh, Definitely. So this is just the briefest overview of what is pretty much acknowledged as the most impactful of the lavender languages. Uh, it's It was really, really hard to rein it in and not make this whole episode about it. But I felt it was really important that we pay respect to as many as we can because especially like yeah. where this language is rooted uh, and continued primarily in English speaking areas that are now much more free um, to be sexually who they would like to be. Um, there's a couple that uh, are in areas where they are not so free and therefore monumentally important for safety. So moving along, we have Swordspeak. Swordspeak uh, is also known as Beckonese or Beckimon. And I guess more recently, um, they've started to refer to it as gay speak. But it is the okay. secret language used by gay people in the Philippines. Uh, I don't think I've heard of this one. It uses words from Tagalog, English, Spanish, Cubano, uh, Japanese, Sanskrit, and um, along with like regional influences and even celebrity names. Um, And it's actually viewed as like an amazingly campy and hilarious language um, that, Hmm. that is spoken. So according to John Shadle in an article for Vice... Swordspeak is both pay- playful and mind-bogglingly bogglingly complex. Uh, much like Cockney. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so many terms come from names of celebrities, brands, and a cornucopia of other colorful sources. Weilang Julanis Morissette, for example, <laughs> translates to There's No Rain, which is a play on a lyric from Alanis Morissette's single Ironic. It's like rain on your wedding day. 
it is language. Oh my god. Yeah, it is. It is language. <laughs> That's not irony. Right? I do not think that means. What do you think it means? I have an English degree, <laughs> and I will wield it in this particular <laughs> instance only to be pedantic. Nice. All right, I'm done. Uh, it is. <laughs> I've wielded it. <laughs> it is language as pun, as inside joke, as subversion. And it is as metaphorical as it is ephemeral. I kind of love that. I do too. So references to pop culture ensure that gay speak can constantly evolve beyond just simple like appropriation from like heterosexual mainstream. Um, and because oh, of sure. this, though, it can it can constantly reinvent and redefine the boundaries that create this community. As it is ever changing and growing, it is tough to find a lot of sources. For like a, I bet it in, evolves individually within friend exactly, groups too. Exactly, exactly. Which is amazing. Like I love it. Um, yeah, language is cool. I will definitely um, be poking around for some more later um, on that one. Next up, we have another language born of necessity, <clears throat> Lubanka. Uh, I'm going to give a slight trigger warning here and state that we firmly believe in using the term sex worker and respect sex work as valid work that should be legalized. Um, Absolutely. The term Lubanka originated from the root Lubni, which is the Romani word for oh. prostitute. Um, and I yeah. only use that as I don't know how to, I don't want to offend I, either community and it's a literal translation. So just know that we don't use that word. Um, but that is where it was once originated. Quoting from text is, I, I think that is, it's good to point out that it's not what we use anymore. Right. But I don't, I think it's going to be offensive. If you're quoting it from a text, it's going to be mildly offensive anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so we definitely obviously or maybe not so obviously but definitely support sex workers absolutely now the upside to that is that it's it was actually created by transgender women to help protect themselves from abuse and police while walking the streets oh that breaks my heart and gives me warm fuzzies at the same time now the exact and makes me mad which they shouldn't have to like i no. curious the exact date of origin is not really known now the first recorded instances of it were in the 1980s but there are linguistic cues that suggest that it was in use by the end of the ottoman period which is like the early 1900s really? yeah so huh as the uh and this the theory is like as the ottoman empire went into decline like the values that they had kind of started shifting. So by the end of the, or by the early 1900s, men having sex with men was morally taboo where it wasn't before that. Uh, so it's believed that this may not, that may have been the root of Labanka. Uh, prior to that, they had bathhouses. Now bathhouses were no longer safe, private spaces for sex workers. So queer sex worker communities sprang up in, neighborhoods uh mm-hmm. neighborhoods that were shared by roma people which makes sense okay. as romanian sex workers were segregated and pushed to the fringe of society pretty much occupying the same space then 
So, in addition to Romani, there are also that sucks. Yeah, there are also elements of Kurdish, Greek, and Bulgarian. Uh, it is Im- fascinating. Right. It is important to note that Labanka is still vitally important in Turkey, where transgender women need oh, as much protection yeah. as they can get. Many are unable to find work because of discrimination, which makes sex work an economic necessity. Working illegally mm. puts them at great risk of violence or arrest and is why it is still needed. Um, even in our country alone, where we are deemed more accepting, black trans women are being murdered at an alarming rate. So I can't even imagine the fear. Yeah. Um, in a, in a country like Turkey. Now, it has seen a surface of mainstream popularity online, but until trans... Damn kids, right, get off their lawn. Seriously, until trans women are protected, it, it needs to continue to be their fucking language. Yeah, let, let's not uh, appropriate something that then makes it less safe. Right. And as we believe in their protection and the importance of their safety, I'm not going to delve any deeper into the language and the structures and very uh, various examples of it. Okay. Because I feel it important that you know it exists and that it needs to exist. But I also would hate to put anybody at risk, even if it is mm-hmm. online. I do the work then to find it if you want to, just because that way yeah. it just feel safer which then also leads us to the last up for today which is a trip to south africa and there's two languages there one and i'm gonna mispronounce this and i'm real sorry i tried to find any kind of pronunciation and it just doesn't exist anywhere online um i believe it's in Sinkoma and gale those are two different languages the reason there's two of them is one is born from colonization which would be gale i believe it, there's a lot and the more that i dove into this the more that i realize that this topic requires a lot more time to be respectfully yeah. done but i also didn't want to leave them out as they are important so i mm-hmm. encourage you to give them a search and i understand that the last two kind of may seem like a cop-out but i assure you it is it's out of respect um, because yep. it's not my language. I am not a transgender woman. I am not an African. And I would rather pay respect and cut it short than cross a line. Um, so yep. before I complete my wrap up dance through the lavender language, I wanted to leave you with a couple of facts. One, did you know the Sanskrit language has 96 words for love? No. It does. Cool. It's the most. Uh, Research has found that the world's languages contain 14 different kinds of love. Hmm. Which I find amazing. And then the last fact that I will... I mean, that makes sense. It does. And the last fact that I will die on a hill on is love is love yeah that's a hill i too am willing to die on and that is lavender languages 
languages of love that are valid and important. Absolutely. Both historically and today. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. Well. <laughs> and that uplifted. Shall I lighten things up ever so slightly yes. by asking you how you would particularly not like to die this week? Ooh, weekly worst way to die. I could go with a really bummer one. <laughs> I think you should go with whatever whatever mood takes you. I, I don't want to do the bummer one. Um, well, then I don't think do I'll the do bummer my, one. my more light, lighthearted one and that is because summer has struck here in Wisconsin and I am mm-hmm. allergic to the little bastards. So, <laughs> mosquitoed to death. Oh my gosh, I too am allergic to mosquitoes, like, a lot. Yep. And, it is. oh, word. we would have such good screens anywhere we went together. Uh, we literally have a spray, like, I literally replaced spray bottles in the car. There's one by our mudroom door of, and I get the shit with DEET in it. I'm like, mm-mm, nope, <laughs> none of this. Uh-uh. No citronella for me. I am going for the look at me and you're going to fall down to the ground. <laughs> Effective. Yes. And how, dearest Haley, which is yes. your weekly worst way to die. <laughs> Funny you should say it that way. My weekly worst way to die is insatiable longing from rereading love letters. Oh, Soon to death. <laughs> yep. Uh, yep. Uh, and picture that with Lord Byron being dramatic all around it. <laughs> yes. You would have the best fainting couch. There's no doubt in my mind. It would be like hand carved skulls on the back of it. <laughs> I mean, if we're gonna go there, we may as well have real ones. I'm just saying. <laughs> right? <sighs> I mean, you know, of consensually donated bodies. Dead ones. Yes. <sighs> Already dead ones. <laughs> so, hey. Yeah. Do you want to be spooky internet friends? Obviously. Do you want to send us love letters? <laughs> Always. <laughs> we are at Bones and Bobbins on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, even the Pinterest. Or you can just find <gasps> us at bonesandbobbins.com. And don't forget to rate and review this, this very podcast. It pleases the internet gremlins. And that's how we show up in recommendations so that other morbid souls can find us. Bring forth the morbid souls. <sighs> exactly. And we want we them. Do. We need them. For her. For reasons. <laughs> and on that note, let us leave you with some advice that you should never forget. Lock your doors. And don't run with scissors. <laughs> Happy Pride. <laughs> Yay! Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson-Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. 
You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content.